So let's look at the first one. Ready? To have faith in Jesus is to have life already. Now, if you can just let that sink in and think about it, because it's powerful. When you put faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he gives you life already. So you don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. It is yours as a gift. It says this in verse 1, you have been raised with Christ. Upon faith in Jesus, you have been raised with Christ. And that's the foundation to life for you, truly and meaningfully, to live a life full. And it's the breakthrough that we need, that we find life in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find ourselves, we find our hearts, we find who we are in the resurrected life of Christ. To recognize the futility of self-discovery when we live independently of God, we recognize this. We are only ready to live when we first and finally die to our own independence from God. And what I mean by this is we are ready to live when we realize we can't resurrect our own life through those methods that we just described to you a moment ago. Verse 3 says it plainly. You have died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. So to come to faith in Jesus means that something about you has to die. It's, it's sort of negative, isn't it? You have died. Something has to die for you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So to come to faith in Christ means that something about you has to die. It's the part of you that believes or believed that you can make your own life happen through rules or pleasure or pain. That you can satisfy your own soul apart from the resurrection of Christ. Now, okay, so to the shirt. I'm wearing this button-down shirt. And what's more annoying when you button your shirt and you realize, you, you know, you start, right, and you go to the second button and then the third button. You get to the bottom. And, oh, no. You realize that you did something wrong, <laughs> right? Like, you missed a button. You know, so you, okay, this isn't right. And hopefully you figure out before someone else sees you like that that you've done that. Um, I've done this on purpose this morning. <laughs> you get all the way to the bottom because you started with the wrong button. Isn't that true? You just started in the wrong place. So because you started in the wrong place, you ended up in the wrong place. And at the end of the day, when you're all done buttoning your shirt, it's just, you know, I don't have to look right now that something's wrong, by the way. It feels wrong. I know that something is wrong with my shirt. And then when I look down, I can see, oh, that's what's wrong. It's all twisted. It's not comfortable. My shirt is not attached the way it was designed to be. And because of that, there's a certain amount of discomfort. Isn't that true? So what do I need to do to fix this? Right. Okay. Now you can go home and tell all your friends that your pastor unbuttoned his shirt <laughs> during a service. Okay. But I am wearing a shirt underneath it. So, okay. So you got to start again, don't you? You need to start over. You can't be like, nope, that's the way I button my shirt. Well, you could, but you'll be uncomfortable. Isn't that true? So... So this is just like a simple, silly illustration to hopefully illustrate to you the fact that if you start wrong, you'll finish wrong. 
How, how many people have experienced this with putting together furniture, right, or toys, right? You, so you got this bookshelf or you have this thing, you know, it's like a cheap piece of furniture from Walmart. You've got to assemble it. And you, you do something wrong right at the beginning, but you don't realize it until the end. When, when you realize something is not right, this thing is not getting put together correctly, and then if, if you figure it out, you've got to take the whole thing apart and start again, right? Isn't that, isn't that a fun day, <laughs> right? That's when we learn all the swear words that you know, right? So I've done this. We miss a step. We end up in the wrong place because we started in the wrong place. Friends, this is sort of what it means to die with Christ. It means, in a sense, that we realize that we're assembling our life wrong. And that left to ourselves, we always will. We'll we, we will always end up with a cuck-eyed shirt, right? We miss that step. We realize we can't do it, so we humbly fall on the one we call Lord to give us life. And he sort of, we die, right? Something has to come undone. We unbutton so that we can be buttoned up again properly. And we finally start doing that. To die with Jesus and to be risen with Jesus means that we are identified with Jesus. Our person, our identity, who we are at, at its core is discovered when we, when we learn about who he is and we begin to love, serve, and follow him. Romans chapter 6 repeats this. Now, if we die with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So when we come to Christ, our dysfunctional way of doing things dies. We look to Christ who gives us life and who, who actually keeps that life safe for us. He's the one that provides it. The way is dead. So to have faith in Jesus to be saved means that we've died to our old way of figuring life out. Our own sinful condition. The belief that we can do something, we can achieve our own success and our own purpose by rules, pleasure, or sacrifice, like we said in the beginning. It's a dead and lifeless direction, and it has to die. It has to be unbottened if we're ever to know real life and happiness in Christ. So through this death comes a new life that is now, what, our, what did our text say? Hidden with Christ. Through this death comes a new life hidden your life now, when you put faith in Jesus, he gives you his real life and he hides it. What does that mean? I don't think it means that it doesn't show or that we can't experience it, but that it's safe. It's protected. We hide things, don't we, that are valuable to us. Things that are expensive we put in safes or lock boxes because we don't want it to be stolen. Well, our new life in Christ is hidden, and that means it can't be stolen. You can't steal it. Satan can't steal it. Your enemies can't steal it. Your eternal life is guarded by God in heaven. Isn't that great news? So that means something very simple, that when you come to faith in Jesus and he gives you eternal life, it won't be taken from you, even if you fail, even if you mess up. Your heart and your soul, the thing that is most precious to you, Resurrected by God is kept safe by God for you. 
Isn't that good news? Friends, I want to tell you that John 10 repeats this. Jesus says these words, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So where are we hidden in this verse? In Colossians, it says that our life is hidden with Christ and God. In John chapter 10, it says that that life is in his hand. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Because your life, eternal life, the forgiveness of sin, and your security in Christ is secured by the Father and the Son. So they are the ones that keep you alive, not you. They are the ones that deliver you safely to eternal life. Because the ones that the Father has given to me, no one can take away. Some of you this morning might suffer with chronic anxiety or depression. You've dealt with it throughout your life. And in that process, you might notice from time to time a sort of lifting of that gloom, and you feel a certain measure of joy and peace in your heart. And if you've suffered with chronic anxiety and depression, chances are that your first thought is, this isn't going to last. Like, you've been tricked too many times by kind of momentary glimpses of joy to think that somehow you'll end up living a life that is, is peaceful in your heart. And, oh, what a, what, a, what a difficult challenge that I know that is um, if you bear it. But, friends, Jesus promises that the life he gives you, in spite of how you might feel at any given moment, is hidden. And it's safe. And whatever it is that you carry, whatever burdens that you carry in this life, will be lifted in the next. And that is based on the promise of God. It's not based on mine. It's based on his word. Jesus promises that the life he gives you is hidden with him. He keeps it for you so that you don't have to. And you cannot lose it and no one can steal it. Your eternal life is safe. So you're ready, right? Ready, set. Let's talk about that. Verse 1, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, okay? Now that you have died, something's died, your shirt's unbuttoned, right? Now what? Okay, start again. There we go. That's right, I think. <laughs> set your mind tune in to heaven align your thinking your heart and your soul with the heart and soul and mind of your God it's a little better you see friends when you're tuned into heaven your heart, when your heart is tuned into heaven it gives you perspective about life it just does it doesn't mean that you don't have pain anymore. It doesn't mean that you don't have suffering anymore. It doesn't mean that, that you can't enjoy the pleasures of life anymore. It, it only simply means that those things, the pleasures and pains of life, are meant to point you to, a, to an objective, to an end. That those things are not the end of themselves. Your loss is not the end, and your joy is not the end. They're meant to point you to a greater end. See, that's what this means to have a mind that's set on heaven to reorient yourself 
to have a soul in harmony like my shirt is now in harmony, right? Being, the, being built the way that God designed you to be built, to think with him and to not, to th- not simply to think on your own or independently of him, that he made you to enjoy him and to love him, and that's when your life is most deeply satisfied, okay? In Christ, by faith, that reset <laughs> occurs, right? That unbuttoning of sorts. And now, day-to-day living can happening, where we continually set our minds on the purpose of our life, the real purpose of our life. And you know, our sc- the scripture text talks about this in a few different ways. How do we set our lives? There are a few, there are a few different directions that he gives us about what this means to be set, to, have a, to, to continually set our minds on, on heaven. The first instruction is that this setting, this tuning, is a continued and daily discipline. It is not something that you do once, like you get baptized once, or even like communion we take once a week, each time we meet, that's what the Bible directs. No, this setting of our hearts in, in Scripture is a continual thing. It's a lifestyle. So it's a continued setting, a, a daily tuning, a readjusting. And so it's not a one-day duty. It's a habit of thought life that's to be done continually and habitually. And it implies something negative, too, unfortunately. If we have to continue tuning into heaven, the implication is that we get out of tune. Isn't that true? If the Bible says readjust, readjust, continue to set. That means that we drift. We're bent on not doing that. Okay, so we, that, that's the negative in, in implication that the picture gets fuzzy from time to time, that we can forget and drift and get distracted. We can make poor choices. And all these things sort of make the image fuzzy. And if we left, leave it unattended, that screen begins to roll. And I know that some of you are foreign to that because that's an old TV reference, right? The screen begins to roll, things get fuzzy, and we need to readjust for a clear picture. Or how about this? You ever leave a jug of lemonade like on the counter for too long or in the fridge for too long? What happens? All that nice, delicious, lemony stuff starts to go to the bottom, right? And after a few days in the fridge, you've got to take that out, and you've got to get your wooden spoon, and you've got to stir it up again, don't you? That's how the Bible describes the spiritual life that we need to be stirred up. And if we don't stir ourselves up, that will sink to the bottom and will drift. And the Bible tells us to do this in three ways. The first way is that we meditate on God's word every day. We think, it doesn't mean we, ha- we, re- we read for four hours. It means that we're thinking about what God has said to us as a habit. Romans 12, 2. Be transformed, be stirred up, if you will, by the renewing of your minds in God's word. John 17, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Stir, stir yourself up. Set, tune your mind with your word, right? John 17 and Romans 12. But also prayer, praying the word. Philippians chapter 4, and everything by prayer, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God will guard your minds. It will tune you in, in other words. See? So meditating, prayer, and fellowship with God's people around God's word. Meditating on God's word, praying God's word, and fellowshipping with God's people around God's word 
Hebrews 10, stir one another up to love and to good deeds. Get tuned in, right, to who you are and who Christ has made you to be in these ways. So we need to have habits of stirring ourselves up, setting the antenna to get a clear picture, if that makes sense. So we set ourselves up daily, but we also, the setting also has an interpretive principle. What are we setting ourselves to? We've been saying it a little bit already, but let's talk about that a little more. We are bringing heavenly direction to earthly duties, okay? So when we set ourselves to heaven, we're to do it daily, but we're also to remember that this setting has a heavenly direction to it. To have a mind and heart fixed on Christ in heaven doesn't mean that you can't enjoy various gifts of life on earth. So please don't misunderstand. Only that heaven, that Jesus, interprets our life for us. Does that make sense? Let me explain. It means that we concentrate on Christ in heaven as he gives our lives now purpose. See? That our lives are not just an end of themselves, but they're meant to worship God to see our temporary life as a sort of road to eternal life, as a sample, we could call it, of what God is going to bring to you when Christ returns. So it doesn't mean that we don't have in interest in our human experiences or the experiences of others, because Paul condemned that in chapter 2. It's what Jesus meant when he prayed, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, earth the earthly events are supposed to have this heavenly reality to them, that we're, that we're living our lives for the glory of God. Our earthly lives provide a context for the forever lives we'll live with Jesus. So earthly pleasure, for example, is a, is a sample of the pleasure that we'll receive with him in heaven. So another, let's, let's just make this real. If you're enjoying a nice piece of cake and you're loving that cake, how can you have a heavenly mind in that? God, thank you, right? Like, one day, I'm going to be with you in heaven, and the way that I'm enjoying this now is just a sample of the kind of pleasure I'll have with you forever. You see, pleasure is supposed to point us to the greater pleasure. Isn't that true? And how, well, how about pain? Pain in life is not an end of itself, because we're promised that when Christ returns, he will finish all injustice, he will squash it under his foot, and he wins it. So we don't have to be defeated in our pain because we know that Christ will come and deal with it ultimately and finally. Isn't that good news? Earthly sacrifice isn't an end, but points us to the purpose of that sacrifice to be with Christ in heaven. Advocating for justice now is just a picture of the final justice that Christ will bring. When all the poverty that we, that we so long to see eradicated, all the injustice, all the abuse, when Christ comes and finishes it once and for all and finally. So when we're fighting injustice, it's not just an end in itself. We're doing it because our God is a God who fights injustice. Do you see the difference? Have a mind that's set on heaven and not just one that's set on earth. Our lives are not an end to themselves, but leads us to a better end 
which is Christ in heaven. So setting is a daily responsibility. It's an interpretive principle of life. It's, a, it's how we interpret our life. And number, f- number, number three, we set ourselves to understand that there is an assured outcome. Set your, th- your, your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There is an assured outcome to the direction of human history and to your life. There is something that is going to, be, that is going to happen, not because we will it to, but, be God, but because God has promised it to. It means that because Christ, so Christ was obedient to the point of death on a cross, he rose again to new life, right? He's seated at the right hand of God. All of this means that when Christ was obedient and dying for sinners, conquering death, rising to new life, and even giving us that new life, that he, Jesus, has earned a place of absolute authority over all creation. That means very, something very simply. He wins. He has a plan, and his plan wins. No matter what we think or no matter how we try to oppose it, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is an image. This is a picture. Christ sitting at the right hand of God means that Christ's plan will be accomplished. He's given the authority of the creator. Okay? He wins. His purpose triumphs. And our task in setting ourselves to heaven is to redirect our daily pursuit to what it is that he promises and not what it is that we want. Does that make sense? To redirect our daily pursuit when we do this assures us that we won't end up living for the wrong things and that it won't be burned up. Fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So friends, the call is not to stop you from being you, but it's to be you with fixed eyes on Jesus and his purpose for you. I hope that makes sense. How many people have ever seen the movie Chariots of Fire? It's an old movie, I think from the 80s, maybe even the 70s, right? The Chariots of Fire. It's a, it's a true life story about two Olympic athletes. They were runners from 1924, so this is way back. Their names are Eric Lydell and Harold Abrahams. It's a wonderful movie, by the way. Um, there's a very diff- big difference, though, between these two runners. So the whole movie is depicting sort of their lives and how they interpret the purpose of their life. They both run, but they run for very different reasons. One is a Christian, one is not. In one scene, Abrahams, who is the person that's not a Christian, he says this about his running. He says, and now in one hour's time, I will be out there again with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. (laughs) But will I? That's Abrahams. Now, Eric Lydell, a Christian, he says this, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You see, one man is running to prove himself. The other man is running to love God. 
because God made him to run. And he knew it. He made him to run. So when he ran, he ran to give praise to God, to love God, not to prove himself, to just to be himself. Do you see the difference? And that frees us, friends, to not to become a missionary or to become a pastor, but to be you, to be who God has made you to be. That's how you serve him. You see, um, I was reading um, Tim Keller, and he actually comments a little bit on, on these two athletes in a book that he writes. That, um, I believe it's um, an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. But he writes this, Harold Abrahams was weary even when he rested. He was tired even when he rested. But Lydell was rested even when he was exerting himself. Why? Because there's a work underneath our work, and that's the work that we need rest from. It's the work of self-justification. So when Paul says to set your heart on Christ above, he doesn't mean to stop being a runner if you're a runner. He does mean to stop running for yourself, to prove yourself. Right? Abraham's seeks satisf satisfaction and joy in the race, and it always eludes him. He never gets joy from it. Lydell finds satisfaction in Christ and experiences his joy as he runs. Two artists paint a similar picture. One seeks joy in the painting and is never quenched. The other seeks joy in God and feels his pleasure as he paints. Two doctors perform surgery. One performs surgery because she loves the feeling of being needed. Another performs the surgery for the glory of God, and she senses God's pleasure as she operates. Two parents raise their kids. One seeks joy in her children, and she builds her life on their success. If they misbehave, she's crushed as her identity takes a blow. This is my fault. Another parent finds her joy in God and offers her children to him. And as she parents, she feels his pleasure. It says this in Psalm 16. He sets the Lord always before him. Even in the regular and mundane, we may, we may sense his pleasure as if we set the Lord always before us. We can feel his pleasure when we fill in the blank. Right? See, so friends, when we do this setting, right, there is an assured outcome that Christ who sits on the throne will, will satisfy your life not because of not, not because of what you've decided that you want, but because of who he's made you to be. To be you and to trust that Christ is seated on the throne to perfect that process in you. Okay? Ready, set, go. Let's close with this. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, <clears throat> then you will also appear with him in glory. You see, when the last button is buttoned, <laughs> right? And your life is lived to the glory of God. You'll appear with him in glory. And it's really interesting, I think, what's said here because we tend to, I, I think, really quickly skip over this part because it says, when Christ, who is your life? Christ is your life. 
It's what you get li- where you get life from. It's where you get your purpose, your meaning, your joy, your pleasure. It's, it's, he's the end. He's where we're going. And that, that's when life, you start to get freed in life where you can lose and it's okay and you can win and it's okay. Right? Everything that it means to be human is ultimately summed up in Jesus Christ. The pain you feel, the pleasure you feel, the laughter you feel, the joy you feel, the grief you feel, all of, the, all of the, such human things. You begin to experience even more fully and more perfectly when, you're, when you are set on heaven in Jesus Christ. You know the awe that you feel on top of a mountain. You ever climb a mountain and you're just like, wow. The love that you feel at a marital altar the breathlessness that you experience when maybe your children were born. All of those amazing human moments, right, of life. You, you, we have tons of them. But friends, what I'm suggesting to you, Christ made those moments, and in Christ those moments are transformed and perfected in ways that we never could imagine. Because he's the new end. Christ is our life. The goal he has given you by faith is for you to enjoy really what it means for you to be a human being for hev- forever with him perfectly in heaven. Isn't that good news? He wants you to be human. But the way, not distorted, not with a crooked shirt, in him. Let's pray. God, I recall the words of um, C.S. Lewis when he said that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak because we're half-hearted creatures. We fool around with alcohol and with sex and with all of our ambitions when infinite joy is offered us. We're like ignorant children who want to make mud pies in a slum because we've never even thought of what it's like to be given a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. God, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be tuned to heaven. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Oh God, thank you for this wonderful promise. Tune our hearts to sing your grace. God, we ask also, Lord, that if there's anyone that doesn't know you this morning, that hasn't put saving faith in Jesus Christ, would you come to him? Would you cry out to him, God, save me a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm far from you. I've been living my life my own way, trying to figure it out. Nothing has worked. And it's because I'm made in your image. I'm meant to be loved and enjoyed by you and for you. And I believe that Jesus died for my sins on a cross, rose again to give me eternal life that he will keep for me. Oh, friend, if that's you, if you're turning to Christ in repentant faith, oh, you're saved, you're new. He gives you eternal life and you will never perish. We pray now, God, that you would just bless us as we continue our